Genesis is the book of beginnings, and throughout the scriptures we read how he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We find it throughout the entire Bible. And when we get to chapter 37, it's almost as if we have forgotten Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and from 37 right to the very end of Genesis, it almost is all about Joseph, if we are careful, we would think that. Joseph, when we look at Joseph, and I mentioned this before, that if we look at the Old Testament uh, people who walked with God, I think Joseph emulates Christ more than anybody else. Now, you may have a different uh, perspective on it. That's quite all right. You might want to pick Jeremiah, but Joseph is one who was betrayed by his brothers, was put in prison, and began his ministry at the age of 30. Kind of neat. But we read here in chapter 40, he turns to the cupbearer and says, remember me. Remember me. And it's interesting how this term, remember me, pops up in a lot of different places in Scripture. And uh, you can turn to, actually, Exodus 13.3. Exodus 13.3. And there we read, Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for... Uh, sorry, um, remember this day in which you came out of from Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For be a strong hand, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out of this place. Joseph said, "Remember me." Moses is telling the Israelites to remember God who delivered them from slavery, and we read that. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup. And he said, this is the new covenant shed in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. Question, what's the Old Testament all about? What's the Old Covenant all about? We have to remember the Old Covenant includes the Gospels and the first few verses of Acts, right? Because the new covenant started with the coming of the Spirit. So what picture could we have concerning the old covenant? Well, I'm going to give you a picture, and later on I'm going to tell you which book I'm reading from. Some of you already know. But I want you, because the book says you're supposed to listen to the book, and so you can create a picture in your mind of what the old covenant was all about. Listen carefully. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with a sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs in the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon was with seven heads and ten hordes on his head, seven diadems, 
His tail swept down a, th- a third of the stars in heaven and cast them into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with an iron rod. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So here we have a picture of 12 stars, and the sun is taken up to the very throne of God. And here we have 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus, who was born out of Israel to be Christ the Savior, who died, was resurrected, he ascended to the right hand of our Heavenly Father. Beautiful picture. Roman, that's actually Revelation 12. There's another real good way of, for us to understand the Old Testament and how we would view Joseph and his patriarchs actually comes from the words of Jesus himself. And if you have your Bibles there, you can look at John chapter 5. Well, the very last verse of John chapter 5. So look for John chapter 6 and just go back uh, a verse or two. And this is what Jesus said. John chapter 5, I think it's verse uh, 39, but it's right at the very end. John 5, 39. So at verse 39, John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures, he said, because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. So the scriptures, Jesus said, the Old Testament scriptures bear witness of Christ. It is a picture of Christ as you read it. And, of course, we have no problem reading Psalm 22, the suffering Messiah. We have no problem Um, reading Isaiah 53. This is Christmas season, so we're going to read a lot of Isaiah, the prophecies. How about, I think it's Micah 5.2, is it? Where Bethlehem is mentioned. But there are other passages, like Genesis 28, or 38, rather. Very difficult to find the connection between Christ and those passages. Now, when I was a teenager, I never read the newspaper, uh, it was the only time I, I saw my father wear glasses and he read the newspaper. But I noticed on page two of the London Free Press, there was always a comic strip there. And uh, wasn't really interested in the comic. But on the bottom right-hand corner, it was Ting. So in that picture, there was this little worm that I always wanted to find. I didn't care what the comic strip was. It's kind of like uh, today, I think our grandkids is, uh, where is, um, where is Waldo? I think there's lots of books like that. When we go to the Old Testament, our attempt is, where is Christ in this passage? Because Jesus said, it's about him. Now, when we go to the New Testament, uh, we find that uh, it's a very different story. We need to realize that our New Testament was pretty much assembled about 150 A.D. We have lots of evidence that people had uh, a body of books together uh, that resembled our New Testament. Um, 
Most of them were about 22 books in total. Uh, some of them were missing something like a second or third John or Jude, which was one book, uh, which you could imagine how they would be uh, hard to come by because it was only one book. But pretty much the New Testament was assembled at that point. But the apostles didn't have that. So what did they do? Personal testimony? That would be cool. What did Peter say about personal testimony? Turn with me, Second Peter 1.16. 2 Peter 1.16. Peter 1.16. And this is what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly designed myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitness of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Notice what Peter says here. He was on that mountain. This is what we experienced. But the word of the prophecies, the word of the Old Testament is more sure than what he would tell them about what happened on that mountain. Isn't that incredible? That's how important the Old Testament scriptures were. It pointed to Christ, and the prophets were led by the Spirit. So we're looking at Joseph and how he is following in those steps of revealing Christ to us. And so we read Joseph, who was betrayed by his brothers, who became a servant, who was imprisoned falsely, right? Look at Genesis 39, 9. What does it say? He was put in prison by Potiphar's wife, and Joseph said, let it be that I do not do this wicked thing before my God. He saw that sin was a wicked thing. And it's almost as if he's being tempted, not in the wilderness like Jesus was, but in Potiphar's house. And he didn't want to do a wicked thing. And we see the words that Jesus had when the devil tempted him, you know, and we see a very good similarity in how, you, how he responded to sin. Now we find in chapter 40 of Genesis that Joseph was in prison, And he was also the warden, modern term, of the prison, gave Joseph uh, the, the job of looking after the prison. A prisoner looking after the prison? Kind of like the fox looking after the hen house. But again, he saw the gift that Joseph was given by God, the gift of administration. Now, when we look at this passage, we find that Joseph is managing it, and there are 
two individuals there who had dreams. Now, um, we have to remember, um, I guess if we're a younger Sunday school student, we might think the cupbearer is somebody who's only holding a cup and the baker's just making a loaf of bread. Well, we have to realize that Joseph was a high official in Potiphar's household, and this cupbearer and this baker had high positions as well. To put it in modern terms, it would be, uh, they would be the minister of agriculture or the minister of transportation. They just didn't have one job. They had a portfolio in Pharaoh's um, um, political structure. And the Pharaoh got angry with them and threw them into prison. And we can think of modern-day situations. Were the cupbearer and the bakers really guilty? Probably but we know that a lot of people are thrown in prison when they're innocent. We have no idea. But they were important people in this, in this political realm. Now, we will notice a pattern when it comes to um, these two individuals. They had a dream, and they were disturbed. But there were hundreds of dreams. Mo- uh, Joseph didn't interpret those dreams. Notice what Joseph said. Only God can interpret dreams. But they, were, they had a dream, and they were disturbed, and Joseph noticed that. Remember how in the past other people were disturbed? Remember when uh, the Pharaoh took Sarah way back then? Pharaoh was disturbed that long time ago. And remember that uh, Abimelech took a Rebekah, and he was disturbed. These people had dreams, and they were disturbed. There was something in the dream. God was disturbing them, and Joseph noticed And so we find here that Joseph is saying, okay, only God can interpret dreams. Beware of dreams. In our modern day of communication, there are so many dreams out there. People have had wonderful dreams, and they have dreamt that they've been to heaven, and they tell us all what they saw there. Remember what Peter said? He said, the word of God is made more certain. The Spirit led them. And so when we have these people who give us weird dreams, let's remember there, we dream weird dreams, and only God can interpret dreams. Because I'm sure we could all sit down and talk about weird dreams that we've had, and they really don't mean anything, do they? Somebody did tell me that men dream more than women. Um, I'm not sure how they got that, but they they actually say that. So basic, what we have here is Joseph simply says, now this is a common, common verse that comes from, a common sentence that comes from Joseph's mouth, and this is 40 verse 8. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. And so he did tell them his dreams, and he uh, saw the fulfillment of the dreams because three days later, the cupbearer is released and the baker is put to death. And Joseph says, remember me. Remember me. At the end of chapter 40, what does it say? The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. So we have to stop and think. 
cupbearer was thrown in prison by Pharaoh. He's just been released because of Pharaoh's birthday. Now, what would you do? Would you make a big show of it? Make sure Pharaoh knows you're there? Or would you keep your head down and make sure that Pharaoh keeps his promise and keeps you out of prison? And so that's what basically happened. The cupbearer realized that if he makes a big to-do, he might get thrown back into prison. He was afraid. And this is going on for two years. He's afraid. And so he's trying to stay away from Pharaoh making any big to-do. And then what happened? Well, I didn't read it, but two years later, we have another dreamer. And you all remember it because I'm sure you've all read the passage. You've heard the passage. Pharaoh has two dreams, one about fat cows, one about skinny cows, one about wheat. And we find that there's three things that are going really amazing when it comes to Pharaoh. Number one, the same thing. He had a dream and he was disturbed. And that always goes together. But the other miracle there is all of his helpers, his um, people who were controlling the government, his officials, didn't know how to interpret the dreams. Now, you listen, you've gone on the internet, you've listened to the news. Where is it in the world that a leader had a question and the news media didn't have an answer? They always have an answer. The miracle here is that these people, these leaders of Egypt, were silent. They didn't didn't know how to interpret these dreams. That in itself is a miracle. I, can t- I can't tell you how many times we came out of church and there was always a couple of guys out there and we solved the world problem before we went home from church. When we look at uh, the world around us, um, we find that there are some leaders that are nasty. We can think of Nero, who partied when he was burning down Rome. He married uh, another man and committed suicide at 35. And yet we have other leaders like Queen Victoria. We have a holiday, right? May 24th. Not always on 24th, but we have that holiday because she was memorable. She did good things. We can think of this pharaoh who was going to do good things. We haven't read that yet, but he's going to do good things. He was concerned about his people. And then we have the other pharaoh, who was drowned in the Red Sea. Now, when it comes to um, prosperity, a country needs three things. It needs water, arable land, and energy. Canada's got that. Egypt had that. The United States, Europe, all had that. If you have those, you can be prosperous. If you're missing water, that's bad news. If you're missing where you can grow food, that's a problem. If you don't have energy, that's a problem. But Egypt had all three. We'll get to Joseph in a little bit. Now, um, as an electrical engineer, I was fascinated with uh, how we generate electricity, and I came across a good documentary for my class to watch, and it was about dams, 
and it was about the first successful dam on the Nile River, which, of course, went through Egypt. But before they got to the dam, they talked about what life was like with the Nile. And it's cool. They actually had video evidence. This was before documentaries were pure political nonsense. So they actually had video of what was going on. So in their rainy season, now we have to remember the Nile was not like the Thames or the Sidonia. It was a big river. And so in the rainy season, now I think, if I'm not mistaken, the beginning of the Nile actually is in the center of Africa. So it's so long. So in the rainy season... All the way along the Nile, the, rivers would, the river would start to increase in size. What's in the river? Dead things. So the river would come up to Egypt, and it would rise, cover the river flats, and then it would subside. Now, what happened was, is that they had cisterns on the river flats. So as the water came up, they would fill their cisterns. Energy. And when it subsided, what did the river leave? Rotten vegetation on the ground, which we call fertilizer. So they didn't have to water. They didn't have to fertilize. Well, actually, they did have to water because Egypt is known for its dry climate, but their cisterns were full. And so they were blessed. Now they were blessed another way with God's providence. Joseph said, You're going to have seven years of plenty, and then you're going to have seven years of famine. And you better get ready for it. Now, we have to remember that, um, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, When a few years ago, our son is in California, I had to chuckle uh, when they were talking about their problems down in California because they had seven years of drought. And uh, I had to laugh because if we were to take a shovel and we go to the southwestern part of the United States and start digging, we would uncover towns, cities that would host 10 or 20,000 people. Completely abandoned. There was no war. There was no uh, plague. It was just abandoned. So a century ago, people lived in these towns and they walked away. And if we dug a little bit more, we would discover that they experienced a drought for 200 years. Now, if we had a drought here for 200 years in southwestern Ontario, nobody would be here. We would have to walk away. And that's what happened. When it, come to, when it came to Egypt and Joseph, see, that, that is a question here. What did Pharaoh do? Pharaoh called upon Joseph to help. Joseph was a servant. Joseph was a prisoner on death row. He was a Hebrew, a foreigner. And the king of Egypt is asking that guy for guidance. And he accepted it. That's amazing. We can see God's providence in that Pharaoh accepted it. We see God's providence in his leadership. We're silent about what the interpretation of that dream was all about. What did Pharaoh say? Well, I'm going to read it for you. You can read all of chapter uh, 41 uh, when you get home. But here's what Pharaoh had to say. 
There we go. um, Genesis chapter 41, beginning at verse 32. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh, Joseph said, in two forms, is that the matter has been firmly decided by God, and God will do it soon. And now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and a wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by famine. The plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. Verse 38, so, the, so Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man, one in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace and all my people are to be submitted to your order. Only with respect to the throne throne will I be greater than you. So God has put it into the heart of Pharaoh to be led by Joseph. And Joseph, again, was a servant of Potiphar, and he put him in charge of his household. Joseph was thrown in prison, and the warden put him in charge of the prison. Pharaoh Uh, was in need of uh, his dream to be interpreted. Joseph did it, and the Pharaoh put him in charge of that country. Joseph was, he could interpret dreams. He had the gift of administration. Imagine on his resume, he could put down, and I predicted the weather for 14 years. They can't even do that for three days here. If we stopped reading at Genesis chapter 50, we would see that Joseph delivered Egypt from a terrible famine. And he did. But was that the purpose? Was that the goal of Uh, Joseph was to deliver them from famine. If we forgot that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we might think that. But if we look at just Genesis, we could look at, how about Three years in the future. What's happening? Joseph is doing good. The storehouses are getting full. Personally, I'd like to know how they control the rodents myself, but that's another story altogether. How about after seven years? All the storehouses are full. They might think about building new barns to hold all, this, all the uh, produce. And everybody realizes that Joseph is really doing a great job. And then what happened? We could look at what? 11 years? 12 years? How about 13 years? What are they thinking about Joseph? What would happen if you're running out of food and Joseph is in charge of that? 
we do find out that people are willing to give their freedom for food, and that's what the story is. We'll look at that later. But again, when we talk about the providence of God, when we talk about, so Joseph was in prison for two years before he was released. When we talk about the providence of God, we look at these uh, 14 years, and is it all about a famine? No. It's about Christ. It's about his descendants. Chapter 38 is part of the narrative there. What is that all about? Seems like it's out of place, but it really isn't. Because at this point, Jacob and his sons are starting to move apart, and they're starting to intermingle with the natives in Canaan. And if we just look at Genesis, we find that Joseph, and we'll look at this later, and this famine creates a situation in which Jacob's sons all come together and they're now parked in Goshen, in Egypt, separated from every other um, group in the world. And there they would grow for over 400 years. And there's God's providence. There is what God had in store. But more than that, we would find that out of that nation, Christ the Savior would be born. And we can see if we can see that as we read through the story of Joseph. So here we have, and I said this before, that I think Joseph is a great representative of Christ because he was a servant, he was thrown in prison unjustly, and he was, when he got to be about 30, it says, he received this uh, blessing from God to be the administrator of Egypt. He was blessing Egypt. He was the savior of the Egyptians, saved them from starvation. Joseph said, remember me. Jesus said, remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. When we pick up the Old Testament, we remember him. Now, the three books that are very common in the, Old Test- in the New Testament are, number one is the Psalms, number two is Isaiah, and the third one that is most common is the book of Deuteronomy. can't remember a sermon on the book of Deuteronomy. As I'm listening to sermons everywhere, I can't believe how many sermons I have heard from the book of Ruth. I'm not sure why that's a popular book for people to preach on. And one of the things that shocked me, which was true, and it's nice when somebody can uh, state a truth that you knew, but they say in a different way. Um, the preacher said, there are, no, there are no Christians in the Old Testament. And it kind of startled me a little bit, and I said, yeah, well, that's true. But the book of Ruth and Look at, turn to Genesis chapter 38. Look at chapter 38. Those two books are there for the very same reason. It's a violation of the Mosaic law found in Deuteronomy 7.3. So if you have your Bibles there, Deuteronomy 7.3. Deuteronomy 7.3 says the following. You shall make no covenant 
with them, the people in, in the promised land, and shown no mercy to them, you shall not intermarry with them and give your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And that's exactly what happens, what was happening in the life of Jacob's sons and in the story of Ruth. The story of Ruth, he married a Moabite. Chapter 38, he marries what? A Canaanite. You think, what's so bad about it? Remember, um, Isaac told Jacob, you know, Esau's marrying these people. I don't like that. Go back home and get another bride. But that's the Mosaic law. Deuteronomy 3, 7, 3. Now, how does that apply? Now, here's the hard part, and that is, how does that apply to Christ? What's, what's that got to do with it? What does Ruth and Genesis 38 have to do with, with Christ? Well, this is easy. Let's turn to the very first book of the New Testament, the very first chapter. Take a look. Matthew chapter 1. And this is probably the part that we all seem to skip over, the genealogies. Matthew chapter 1. Here we have the first few chapters, for, sorry, the first few verses, we actually have references to Genesis 38 and the book of Ruth put together. The book of the genealogies of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamra. That's Genesis 38. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of... Um, I'm going to skip over those names. And as we read down here, uh, we find in verse uh, 5, it says, Salom, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And there we have the reason why they're found in Scripture, because it's part of the genealogy of Christ. There's a Moabite and there's a Canaanite in the genealogy of Christ. As we read Joseph, as we read the Scriptures, we can look to see how it applies, how it is the living out of Christ in the Old Testament. And that's a challenge for some of those books. And as we read, we might get more and more uh, understanding of where Christ is, like in Ruth and Genesis uh, 38. I don't know anybody who would ever uh, preach on Genesis 38 from the pulpit or read it because it's very graphic. But it's about Christ. And when we look at Joseph, when we look at the Old Testament, we find that Jesus is our Savior, promised throughout the Old Testament. He promised that he would come and save us from our sins. I was listening to um, John McCarthy. He was talking with Ben Shapiro, who's a Jew, and he simply said, oh, the Jews don't need a Savior. If you know John, uh, Ben Shapiro, he's a very intelligent person, and yet he did not see the need for a Savior. They want a Messiah, but not the Savior that Jesus came to do. But Jesus died for us. That your sin and my sin, we could have forgiveness, that we could be drawn close to God. We can say with all certainty, as Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. 
we are freed from our sin. Not only that, but Jesus has ascended into glory. He has sent us his spirit. But it says in John chapter 17, we know that Jesus has ascended to the very throne of his Father. And John chapter 17 says this, I am praying for you. Isn't that cool? That Jesus is beside the Father. And in John 17, he says, I am praying for you, not for the world, but you, my apostles, and all who come to faith through you. Isn't that incredible? Now, that's what the Old Testament's all about. But what about the New Testament? The Old Testament might be a mystery, but we learn that that Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. But what happens now? What happens in the church? What are we supposed to do? We are supposed to do what? Preach Christ and him crucified. I've asked this question a number of times to pastors. It says, um, if you died and 40 years into the future, uh, somebody, uh, 40 years into the future, you died and there, there was a funeral, uh, the people would say, you, were all, you always preached on. And a lot of ministers say, I preached on the gospel. Well, what's the gospel though? A lot of ministers have a lot of different views on what the gospel is. We're not simply told that we are to preach the gospel. We are to preach Christ and him crucified. We are to preach Christ and him crucified. We're to preach Christ. I don't know what day you preached in Mark, but you preached in August, and you preached on Hebrews chapter 12. Anybody remember what he preached on? Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. Keep your eyes fixed on Christ. I was thirsty. I needed to look at Christ. I needed to see him. I needed to see him fresh. I needed to know that he is being preached, that he died for my sins again. I needed to keep my eyes focused in on him. And I walked out and it was, a, it was an experience that reminded me that I was supposed to think about Christ That's what the messages are all about. It's about Christ. The Old Testament predicts the coming of Christ, but the New Testament throughout the, the, from Acts all the way to Revelation is preaching Christ and then crucified, and it refreshes us. It gives us the spirit within us, revives as the deer. I want to leave you with one last passage of Scripture. You can look it up. It's 2 Timothy 2.8, and then we're going to sing our last hymn. 2 Timothy 2.8. And this sums up everything as we're reading the Old Testament. 2 Timothy 2.8 says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Wow. May the Lord show us the blessing there is as we look into his word. Let's join together in the singing of our uh, final hymn, As the Deer. <laughs>